Birthday Biography Podcast. I'm your host, Hannah Mira. This is a daily podcast which shines a spotlight on a person born on this day at some point in history somewhere in the world who made a positive lasting impact. I am so excited that you're going to be joining me on my very first episode. Today, we're going to celebrate the birth and life of Ho Feng Shan, one of the silent heroes of World War II, who was born on this day, September 10th, in 1901. Quick question. If you saved someone's life, not part of your job, not something you're trained to do, the opportunity just sort of presents itself, what would you do after? Once the person is safe and all, what would you do? Would you tell someone? I know I would. I would call my best friend, my mom, whoever, and be like, hey, guess what I just did? I'd put that on my freaking resume. Like, what an amazing thing, right? Our human in history today, Ho Feng Shan, did this thousands of times over. He saved thousands of lives. Not part of his job per se, not something he was trained in. He just did it because he knew it was the right thing to do. And he never told a soul, not even his family, not even on his deathbed, not a word. It's only thanks to the clever detectiving work of his reporter daughter that we know the full scope of what he did and the world-changing impact he had. To understand his full story, we need to start at the point of discovery a few days after his death in the fall of 1997. Ho Feng Shan's daughter, Mon Li, was tasked with the unpleasant duty of writing her father's obituary. He had passed away September 28, 1997, at the ripe old age of 96. Mon Li knew very little about her father's work or activities during World War II, aside from the fact that he had been a Chinese diplomat for the Republic of China and he was stationed as Consul General in Vienna during World War II. He had made it a point never to share these times with his daughter, save for one story that would spark an eye-opening investigation into the life of a man who would become to be known as the Chinese Schindler. Ho had once told his daughter this story about an incident in between 1938 and 1940 in which he had confronted some Gestapo officers in Vienna who were trying to arrest his Jewish friends at gunpoint. Since this was pretty much the only anecdote that Mon Lee had of her father's time during World War II, she added it to his obituary. The obituary ended up being noticed by a curator of an exhibition that was centered on international diplomats who had also served as the rescuers of refugees. The curator's interest sparked Mon Lee's curiosity, and she began to retrace her father's footsteps from his deathbed to a poor fatherless childhood in China. Ho was born September 10, 1901, in Hunan. He lost his father when he was only seven years old. Ho was a very intelligent and dedicated pupil, and he worked his way up into something called the Yali School. Yali School is a first-tier public school in Changsha. Changsha is the capital of the Hunan province. So Ho completes his doctorate in political economics at the Ludwig Maximilian University of Munich in 1932. He began his diplomatic career with the Foreign Ministry of the Republic of China in 1935. He was temporarily positioned in Turkey for two years, and then he was named the first secretary of the Chinese legation in Vienna, so he obviously had to move there, in 1937. 1937, kind of a rough time to be in Vienna because in 1938, Nazi Germany annexed Austria and the legation was turned into a consulate, so his title changed from secretary to consul general. The situation in Europe had been deteriorating for quite some time and things were really starting to escalate and not in an 
upward trajectory sort of sense. In 1933, once the Third Reich really got some steam behind it. In 1938, Kristallnacht, the Night of Broken Glass, took place. History defines this as a pogrom, which is basically a violent riot aimed at expelling a certain group of people, usually Jewish people. We could also just call it what it is. It was a straight-up terrorist attack. Essentially what happened was a 17-year-old Polish Jew named Herschel Grinspin uh, was in Paris and he assassinates a German diplomat in retaliation for the thousands of Jews that he had seen being mistreated and murdered. And as a result, thousands of rioters descended on Jewish homes and hospitals and schools and businesses just destroying everything in sight. Over 30,000 Jews were arrested and put into concentration camps that night alone. For many Jewish people who had not yet fled the continent, many of whom were sort of holding out hope that things were going to get better somehow, this was a terrifying wake-up call that things were about to get way, way worse. So in 1938, there was about 200,000 Jews living in Austria. And considering that the Nazis were spreading throughout Europe like a malignant tumor, the only really safe place for Jews was somewhere completely off the continent. It wasn't like they could go to France or go to Belgium and be like, oh, we're safe because the Nazis were just kind of chewing their way through Europe like some kind of anti-Semitic Pac-Man. So there really wasn't any safe, guaranteed place on the continent. So in order to get out of their country, though, and hopefully off the entire continent, they had to have proof of immigration, like a visa from a foreign nation. And the only problem with this is that you need a country willing to accept and sponsor you in order to get a visa. Looking back on this now with our historical hindsight goggles, it's pretty ridiculous that countries were not lining up to be like, here, you're trying to escape genocide. We will totally help you out. Here's a visa. Here's a bushel of visas. Just get out of your country. Not the case. And here's why. So in July of 1938, FDR put together something called the Evian Conference, in which 32 countries and 24 voluntary organizations got together to decide who would accept all of these Jewish refugees. It was called the Evian Conference because it took place in evian le bain in France. So despite the fact that FDR had set up this meeting, he actually didn't attend. Instead, he sent his buddy, industrialist Myron Taylor, along with diplomat James McDonald to represent the U.S., so these representatives from all across the world gathered together in this one room for about a week to decide the fate of millions of people. Out of the 32 countries present, 31 of them failed to come to any sort of agreement about how many Jews to take. The U.S. and Britain ended up taking about 30 to 40,000 Jews a year. Australia only agreed to take 5,000 a year for up to three years, with Australian delegate T.W. White complaining, quote, as we have no real racial problem, we are not desirous of importing one. That's real cute, Australia. South Africa said they would only take Jews whose relatives already lived there, and Canada refused to make any kind of commitment at all. France's sentiment of, quote, we have reached the extreme point of saturation as regards admission of refugees was echoed by pretty much every other country. The only country that agreed to accept a large amount of Jewish refugees was the Dominican Republic, who were forced to set a cap at 100,000 people due to the limited space and resources on the small island. And Costa Rica would end up later following the DR's uh, example. And it wasn't like Jewish 
American organizations were advocating for their European brethren either. The American Jewish Committee, the Jewish Telegraphic Agency, the Jewish Agency for Israel, the United Jewish Apparel, all of these ostensibly Jewish rights organizations discouraged the U.S. from accepting large amounts of Jewish refugees for reasons ranging from creating a, quote, Jewish problem in the country to hoping that the mounting number of European Jews would put pressure on Britain to open Palestine to Jewish immigration. So Adolf Hitler obviously got wind of this conference, and he said that if any other countries would accept the Jews en masse, he would be more than happy to help them leave. His statement was, quote, I can only hope and expect that the other world, which has such deep sympathy for these criminals, will at least be generous enough to convert this sympathy into practical aid. We, on our part, are ready to put all of these criminals at the disposal of these countries, for all I care, even on luxury ships. Whether or not he actually meant this, we'll never know. But the result of the conference being what it was, it became a propaganda tool for the Nazis to point out that Jews were literally the most worthless race in the world, as no other country wanted them. So their plan to exterminate them all was actually doing every other country a favor. In essence, the Evian conference was the last hope of many Jewish refugees in Europe and the rest of the world failed them. Walter Mondale would later write of the conference, at stake at Evian were both human lives and the decency and self-respect of the civilized world. If each nation at Evian had agreed on that day to take in 17,000 Jews at once, every Jew in the Reich could have been saved. Being in Vienna while all this is going on, Ho obviously was deeply impacted. His supervisor, Qin Ji, the Chinese ambassador to Berlin, forbade him from issuing any Chinese visas to Jewish refugees. But Ho, thankfully, did not listen to him, and he began to issue visas like people's lives literally depended on it. During the first three months in office, he issued 1,200 visas to Shanghai. And what was so brilliant about this was that even though Shanghai didn't even require a visa at that point, the refugees could use those papers to get a transit visa to somewhere else like the U.S. or the Philippines or something like that. Ho continued to issue these visas as fast as humanly possible until his higher-ups found out what he was doing and ordered him to return to China in May of 1940. How many visas he was able to complete, we will never know. We know that he assigned around 2,000 during the first six months of his first two years there. It's highly unlikely that he stopped there considering how passionate he was about this. So it's been speculated that the amount of visas issued could be anywhere from 4,000 up to the tens of thousands. After the end of World War II, the communists gained control of China in 1949. Ho follows the nationalist government to Taiwan, and he was later made ambassador of Taiwan to Colombia, Bolivia, Egypt, and Mexico. After he retired at 72, he moved to San Francisco where he wrote his memoirs called My 40 Years as a Diplomat, which were published in Chinese in 1990, but not available in English until 2010. I was unable to get my hands on a copy of them, but I'm going to assume that he doesn't talk about the visas in them because if he did, his daughter would have been aware prior to his death of all of the lives that he saved. And according to her, she knew nothing of the visas until after he died and she began to do her own research. 
So when he retired, the government of Taiwan actually refused to give him his pension. They said it had something to do with the fact that he refused to cooperate with diplomatic services and there was some bookkeeping errors at the embassy. But a lot of people believe this was more politically motivated, uh, maybe even some kind of backlash for his refusing to follow orders during the war. Who knows? Ho died of old age at 96 in San Francisco, survived by his daughter Mon Li and his son Mon Ho. Man Li's posthumous research of her father led to all of this incredible work finally being unearthed and him being awarded the title Righteous Among the Nations by the Israeli organization Yad Vashem in 2001. Righteous Among the Nations is an honor given to non-Jewish people who risk their lives to save Jews from murder during the Holocaust. Ho is one of only two Chinese citizens to be given this honor. If you would like to find out more about Ho Feng Shan and his incredible work, there is a 2017 documentary called Above the Drowning Sea, all about his life. If you liked what you heard today, please give us a follow on Apple Podcasts and rate us if you're feeling generous. Um, it means the world to a totally homemade little podcast like this one. If you're feeling social, you can follow us um, at Humans in History on Instagram at humans underscore in underscore history. If you have someone you would like to nominate for the show, you can go ahead and send us a message on there. Thank you so much for joining me for our birthday celebration of Ho Feng Shan and our first episode, yay! Please join me tomorrow, September 11th, when we celebrate the birth and life of Dr. Euphemia Haynes, the first African-American woman to receive a PhD in mathematics. See you then.